Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting April 24, 2015, we'll be speaking with British journalist and author Nicholas Jubber about his new World Policy Journal book, Abandoned, Life from Mali's Nomads in the Wake of War. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this... Traditional music of the Tuareg, one of the fabled nomadic peoples of the Sahara, now fallen on hard times, maybe end times, in the troubled nation of Mali. Some see them as an important factor in the fight against Islamist violence that exploded again there in recent weeks. Nomads are reporting on extremist groups they spy across the lands and sands they've traveled for ages. But some have taken up jihad, or secular banditry, while many others find themselves forced by nature and politics into less hospitable urban environments and even actual refugee camps. British journalist and author Nicholas Jubber wrote about Mali's nomads for the fall 2014 issue of World Policy Journal, an article now expanded for a new World Policy Journal book titled Abandoned, Life for Mali's Nomads in the Wake of War. I talked with him earlier. Nick Jubber, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First, locate the area that you roam to spotlight these nomadic tribes. Yeah, well, I've been traveling over the last few years um, periodically in different parts of the Sahara and Sahel region. So for this this particular story that I'm covering in this article and book, I've been traveling in particular in Mali in three areas. One is in the north around the area of Timbuktu in the north of Mali. Another is central Mali in an area called the Senugondu Plain, which is near to the Burkina Faso border, and then also um, amongst uh, the uh, nomadic fishermen on the upper bend of the Niger River. And distinguish between the so-called white, red, and black nomads, including, as you just said, a group I'd never heard of before, nomad fishermen. Yeah, well, these these are distinctions which are partly drawn from colonial times and then partly also absorbed into the local culture, which um, which, are, which are actually in some ways quite fluid. But there is, I think, broadly a distinction between the, uh, the, the Tuareg and Arab nomads of the north, uh, mainly of the north of Mali, um, and um, who, are, who are often described as the white nomads, whereas the um, red nomads of the uh, is, is a description often given to the Fulani who are cattle herders in, in mainly in the centre of Mali, but also moving into the north, and and then you also have some of the black communities who have who who, who have um, nomadic um, communities such as the Bozo, who are the fishermen. Talk about the way changing environment and economic factors have been squeezing nomads for years, if not decades, especially in competition with agrarian interests, a sort of Oklahoma sur la Sahara. <laughs> yeah, well. It's really going back. I mean, it, it, it's, oh, uh, like a lot of these things, it really depends how far back you want to go. But certainly, if you go, but go back over the last century, it has been pretty much a disaster for nomads in Mali. If you go back a little bit further, you can see from the accounts of 19th century explorers like the um, explorer, the French explorer René Caillet described 
traveling through the, the 1820s in the, in the Malian Sahara, traveling with caravans where there would be a 1,400 camels loaded up with, with all sorts of goods, gold, slaves, ivory, ostrich feathers, gum, cloth, and so forth. And those kind of descriptions are now um, very, very different from what we encounter when we, when we meet nomads in, in Mali today, where really they've been pummeled by every, every possible obstacle, from the bureaucratic, um, from farmland expansion and reduction of herding corridors, land privatization, the um, reduction in the leverage of tribal power, to education, which requires people to be closer to towns or, or for young herders to be able to go to school, um, environmental factors, which, which have been absolutely catastrophic, such as slash and burn agriculture and deforestation, which in, in Mali is absolutely um, huge, or the um, decline in rainfall. And, and that's before we even get on to political factors, such as the civil wars that have been going on, the conflicts between um, different communities and uh, the lawlessness and banditry that, that's, that's um, made the desert so difficult, and also narco-gangsters who've been peddling drugs from South America across the Sahara have made everything a bit more dangerous. So, but I think if amongst the people that I, the communities that I visited, I think the one factor that was raised above all was, was the droughts, particularly of the 1960s through to the 1980s, um, which was so devastating that um, whole families lost their entire herds. And I think um, the, uh, in the 1960s, uh, the roughly 40% of the Malian herds were recorded to have died out. And I think something like 100,000 people died due to, uh, due to factors related to the drought. And a lot of people lost their nomadic lifestyle. Um, a lot of people became urbanized. Um, and a lot of people who, who continued have, have never really been able to recover. Amongst the older generations in particular, that it's very much seen as a before and after. The, before the drought, um, they often remember their lifestyles being much, much more um, comfortable, whereas now almost all nomads in Mali are, are struggling to some extent. How is the proportion of nomads in the population changing in the wake of, of uh, what I gather is record urbanization? Well, yeah, the urbanization rate in Mali, I think, is something like 4.8%, which is one of the highest in the world. Obviously, censuses in Mali are quite difficult to, um, to, to collate, um, and nomads are notoriously difficult communities to incorporate into censuses, and especially because of the way that nomadism is, is being conducted in the 21st century, where increasingly you have a you have different kinds of nomadism. You have still year-round nomadism, but more often now you have partial nomadism. There's, there's a lot of people who are partially sedentarized, but they may spend a certain period, especially during the wet seasons, um, when there's more pasture. They may, may, they may spend that period um, herding out, out on the dunes or in the plains and, and living a more nomadic lifestyle. So there has definitely been a, a very sharp reduction in, um, the ab in, in absolute numbers of, of nomads, and so especially in the proportion of the population. But because the, proportion, the population overall is growing anyway, um, in, in terms of absolute numbers, it's not perhaps quite as sharp, but it's still very dramatic. And um, on the other hand, it is complicated by the different lifestyles that, that people are, are conducting now and the, way that, the different ways in which nomadism is, 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 is being operated. Let's look more at the politics. How were most nomads impacted by the 2012 secessionist insurgency of Tuareg MNLA? That's the Mouvement National de Libération de Lazawad, if I have it correctly. How much nomad yes. support does it have? Yeah, well, 
Again, it's very complicated. There, the the MNLA, in fact, was really founded not so much in campsites as in university campuses in Libya, and it came out of of the the Tuaregs who had moved to Libya because of the Malian civil wars, and um, many of whom became involved with Colonel Gaddafi and his Army of Islam, and. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of Tuaregs disenfranchised and and um, con- debating, discussing the what their their aspirations for the future developed um, the ideas on which the MNLA was founded. But in fact, these were mostly people who were not really living nomadic lifestyles. But on their returning to Mali and coming back with the cache of weapons that were brought across from after the fall of Gaddafi, certainly they absorbed a lot of nomads into their ranks. And I think it's important not to romanticize nomads and to remember that a lot of nomadic people have been involved in not only as recruits in some of these groups, but also amongst the leadership, not only in um, the, um, the secessionist groups, but also amongst the jihadist groups. Some of the most um, iconic uh, leaders, in fact, of, of some of the jihadist groups have, have nomadic backgrounds. Iyad Aghali, whose um, answer Din ran overran Timbuktu for 10 months. And um, I think the most iconic of all the Saharan uh, bandits or jihadists is Mokhtar Bal Mokhtar, who's often known as the one-eyed or as Mr. Marlborough, because that's, he started off as a, as a cigarette bootleg. And um, he um, orchestrated well several attacks, including the 2013 attack on the in Amanas uh, facility in Algeria, um, and comes from a nomadic background. So there's certainly a lot of nomads who've who've, who've been absorbed into and, and have entered into these groups. But in fact, it really cuts across the broad, and it's not um, sort of one identity or another. There's um, these these groups really draw draw their support from all sorts of different walks of life. Well, let's follow on that. What impact on nomads came from the coup d'etat that same year in Mali's capital, Bamako, uh, the fighting between uh, Tuareg rebels and Islamists enforcing Sharia law, and uh, finally the French intervention? The coup d'etat was was very much a a situation in the capital in Bamako. So whilst that was happening, there was the um, insurgency going on from from the MNLA and from various groups affiliated with them that was then spreading across the whole of northern Mali. And I think that a lot of people from nomadic communities became swept up in that, absorbed in it. Um, Sometimes there were were financial incentives. um, And uh, sometimes, in, in a lot of cases, something that a lot of nomads have told me was that a lot of people lost their animals. They lost their herds to bandits because the security in the country just fell apart, really. And so people would be living in, in, in their campsite and they'd, you know, they'd get up in the morning and half of their herd had been stolen. So then people are then looking for other, other means of, uh, of survival. Um, so there are all sorts of different uh, routes I think, by which people came into that. And the, the crisis really just swept across the country, especially in areas in which n- nomads are more, more, um, are more commonly found in Mali. So it was impossible, really, for nomads not to be, not to be involved in it. Um, and I think some of them, some of them were, you know, were also very much at the, at, the heart of, at the heart of the struggle. What is nomad life like now in the cities and in the refugee camps? Yeah, well, the refugee camps are um, really are really tough places. I think at the moment, I've um, spoken to quite a few friends who were um, nomadic friends who were coming out of some of the refugee camps and were really desperate to leave them. And they talked a lot about the lack of water, or certainly of clean water, the difficulty of getting sort of basic um, provisions like rice flour, medical uh, needs. Um, one of my friends had um, his nephew was a six-year-old nephew died 
because of malnutrition and um, an uncle was, took a week walking to the camp trying to trying to to get there to safety and died of exhaustion and I think also one of the problems for a lot of nomads is I, I think we often think of refugee camps as being places which would be perfectly acceptable for nomads to live in because they're camps. But in fact, they're very claustrophobic, very oppressive, and um, they're, they're not, a lot of nomads are not used to being in such confined spaces. They're used to much, you know, being much, um, having a lot more land around them. So they do find this very claustrophobic. And for those who've, who've had to go to the cities as well, it's, it's really tough to adapt to that. And also to the depression of having lost their herds and having lost, lost their way of life and just not really knowing what the future holds. Talk about the way nomads still on the move have helped the Mali military counter jihad. Well, that's something that um, some, several soldiers who I spoke to talked about, that going out into the deserts and to the dunes and the plains, that often it's the nomads who would be able to provide them with information, because a lot of the soldiers are coming from, um, they're again coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, but a lot of them are coming from urban backgrounds. They're not that familiar with the desert. And nomads know the desert, and a lot of them know the desert really, really well, much better than anybody else, even, the, even some of the jihadists who've been camping out there for several years. So they are in a pivotal position to be able to really tell people, tell the soldiers what, what trucks gone past, where, which direction they went, where they could possibly end up, what resources they have available to them on the way. And that's the question really of the, of the, of the army building up trust with nomads. There's been so many torrid tales of of, of nomads being taken in for questioning and treated quite brutally by soldiers, especially in the immediate wake of the crisis. So that, I think, certainly damaged the trust between nomads and the army. But uh, some of the soldiers talk about attempting to re recreate that trust and, and, and having succeeded in some areas and therefore being able to draw on the information that the nomads are able to give them. I mean, I think it's a really important factor that nomads can provide security for, for the desert. Without them, the desert is empty and the jihadists really can just thrive there. So they are, although often some of them have been co-opted and, and have, have been involved with jihadists, there are also many who are, who are actually able to provide um, the alternative and are able to provide a sort of uh, guardianship and stewardship of the desert. But have we also seen examples of nomads vulnerable to the kind of bloody retaliation that the jihadists can uh, come up with? Absolutely. It, it, it really covers all sorts of different areas. And I think um, a lot of nomads have, been, have, have joined in for all sorts of reasons, partly because they've been given financial incentives. I, I uh, spoke to a, a, a teacher in Timbuktu who, who used to teach in one of the nomad camps, and he saw several of his students joining up with the jihadists because they were, they were offered a lot of money. I've also heard about marabouts, who are the Islamic preachers that um, you get all over Mali, and they often provide, um, they often um, build a sort of a circle of students around them and provide really the, the only decent education that, um, that, that, that children can access in some of the rural communities. And a lot of them went along with the jihadists because they believed that it was a religious campaign. There's a long history and a very venerable history in Mali of uh, of jihad going back to some some of the folk heroes really for some of the communities um, a, a ruler called Sheikh Amadou who 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 spread jihad across the early 19th century across the Niger River area another called Osman Danfodia who built an empire and and so when people talk about jihad there for a lot of the some of the communities it, it it echoes with some of these more glorious periods of history and so there are all sorts of 
incentives really that were drawing uh, some of the nomadic people in. And then again, there is the, the, the fear of retaliation from, from jihadist groups and also the accusation of really not being, not being part of the movement. So there's all sorts of motivations that, that have twisted the situation, really. Nomad leaders with whom you spoke plead for development assistance from the national government and international aid groups. What kind of development can help a people always on the move, almost by definition? Well, in some ways, actually, I think nomadic communities today are less on the move, actually, than people who are living in towns, who are often moving, moving trades and moving between towns much more. Whereas, in fact, for a lot of the nomadic communities, their routes, because they've become so constricted and because herding corridors are now so narrow, their routes are actually pretty, pretty limited. And also because most of them are not are not moving all the time. They tend to have campsites where they are based for a large part of the year so you see a lot of buildings actually in some of these um, in um, at some of the campsites which are often the schoolhouse or meeting place and in fact one of the problems of people going to the refugee camps is that these houses these buildings were then not, not there was nobody to look after them and when the rains eventually came they they were they they were ruined and in fact in some cases it's nature that has caused more damage than uh, the than the jihadists so so there is certainly the possibility of having infrastructure. A lot of the community leaders who I spoke to were really adamant that, uh, about the need for this. One of them, um, uh, called uh, Mayor Al-Hajj of the Salam community in northern Mali, said that, that they needed schools, administration, security, roads, health centers. And it's that feeling that these, these facilities which have been available to the rest of the country haven't been given to nomadic communities that, um, that breeds some of the resentment that many of them feel. How much promise for the nomad life can be expected from exploiting uh, their areas, uh, obvious potential for solar energy and uh, what we understand are possible resources of minerals and fossil fuels? Well, yes. I mean, you look at the, the potential for solar energy, and it's in, in some ways very exciting. I mean, if you take the case of Morocco, where I think something like like, I think it's something like $9 billion has been invested in the Moroccan solar plan, and they're hoping to supply several thousand megawatts of solar power. Mali has, to put it crudely, at least as much sun as Morocco. Huh. So you'd think that it's something that they could certainly benefit from. And you see a lot of solar panels all over the country, in, whether in village markets or on the, on the top of big houses. But along with some of these other possible resources, the um, uranium hydrocarbons that seem to be underneath the surface in northern Mali, there is great potential. But then when you look at some of the other countries in the neighborhood which have also had these resources, you look at Niger, for example, where there's, which is one of the largest providers of uranium in, in the world, and yet the people of Niger remain, remain really quite poor. So I'm not sure whether... As, uh, as much as it might provide a hope for nomadic communities for the future, it, it's um, debatable whether they'll actually end up reaping the benefit of it. In fact, it's one of the reasons given for the French incursion that uh, because there's all these resources that they're rather keen to uh, be on site. <laughs> Understandable. You write about the need for renewed talks between the Mali government and the MNLA. What specific political goals would most benefit the nomads and, and what are the prospects for them? Well, I think the most important one is security, because if you're moving around all the time with your herd, the thing you really want is 
is to know that you can move from from one well to another or from um, one uh, move down your your pasturing corridor and and be free from being attacked from having your animals stolen from you know all sorts of all, all the the many different obstacles that 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 nomads have experienced in recent years I think there's uh, there's there's a lot of ways in which the in which the talks could benefit nomads. There's all sorts of projects that that have been initiated over recent years in places like Bamako, and yet they've never quite reached the places that they were supposed to be destined for. And you see beautiful houses going up in in nice parts of of the capital, but which are effectively surrogates for the wells or other facilities that were supposed to be built in the places that they were that they claimed to be. So. Certainly, uh, if, if corruption and, and the misuse of, of Mali's resources can, can be um, overcome, I think that would be something that would benefit them. And investment and more, more trade in these areas. Security is probably the, the primary factor. For people outside Africa who want to help, what are the best agencies or types of agencies to support and why? Yeah, well, there's there's lots of different views about what works in Africa because so many different kinds of agency do work and so many don't. Um, community-driven projects certainly and work when they're when they're well managed. One of the ones that I um, spent some time with was um, an organisation called the Jolaba Trust, which works in central Mali, and they do a lot of projects with to do with um, uh, education, anti-desertification literacy training, midwifery training, cattle um, management, water management, and so on. And they are mostly uh, community-driven projects. And from what I can see, I thought they seem to work really, really well. Spell that name of that trust again. Yeah, that's um, J-O-L-I-B-A. So when you have organizations like that that are working really well and that seem to have the confidence of people, I think that's very important when local people have the confidence in, in the organization and in the leaders and it's got local field directors. That's when it seems to really thrive and to work well. And one of the most one of the most useful projects that some of these organisations can can give are the microfinancing ones, which really help people who are trying to rebuild their herds when they've lost a lot of their animals. Um, and I think also another factor that's really important with some of these organisations is that they're very involved with women, and um, ha- women are very much sort of empowered and enfranchised through some of these organisations, which is something that hasn't always happened in the past and seems to be really benefiting the places where it is happening. Beyond the fate of the nomads themselves, your reporting suggests that uh, you also see them as an important asset for the rest of us, uh, an older, alternate, independent paradigm of life that uh, we can revere, if not easily replicate. Or am I over-romanticizing? Well, I think we all probably have a... There is a temptation, yeah, when we look at nomads to to romanticize and... I think, I think, I mean, one of the things that I sometimes think is if there was to be an apocalypse tomorrow, then really it's probably the nomads who would survive because they, they know how to get by on limited resources. They're sort of the great survivors, really, of history. But at the same time, in a very practical way, they're really important for places like Mali because Mali is not a country endowed with an awful lot of grass. So it's, it, nomads are, are needed to provide the dairy and meat products and then they're providers, we talked before, they're necessary for, for security. They, they, they're really pivotal for, for that and for the future security of the country. And then I think if we look at them more on the more abstract level, we live in such an increasingly 
bureaucratic, sedentarized, urbanized world. And I think nomads really provide a balance to that. They show us that there are other ways of living. I think that it is, I think that it is important to have that. I've certainly learned an awful lot from, from the nomads that I've traveled with. And I, I think a lot more than, than I suspect the nomads themselves could learn from, from, from living with us. Nick Jubber, thank you. Thank you very much. Nick Jubber's forthcoming World Policy Journal book is titled Abandoned Life for Mali's Nomads in the Wake of War. His previous books include The Prester Quest and Drinking Arak Off an Ayatollah's Beard. Also featured in the new spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on intelligence failures leading to the Mumbai terror attacks, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and on AIDS in the Arab Spring. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with Argentine lawyer Andres Noble of the Tax Justice Network on the new world of tax havens. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.